good morning. Aren't you glad you live in Georgia so you can get away from the cold weather and the ice and the snow? It's just so great. I want to welcome all of you who are here, those who are at our two campuses, Sugarloaf and at Mill Creek, and those who are watching online and those who will be watching by television. We are thrilled that you're here with us. And if you don't have a church home, hope you'll visit one of our campuses. God's doing some great things with some great people. Well, you know the kind. Uh, we've all met them. They can uh, walk into a room, and all of a sudden, they're in the middle of a group of people. They are the focal point of the conversation. Uh, they just seem to communicate naturally. They're at ease with people they haven't even met. They're easily approachable. You just immediately get the sense, this is the kind of person I'd like to hang out with and spend some time with. They're the type of people that get all the business referrals. They're the type of people that say, you need to meet this person. I really like this person. And people are just drawn to them. And we have a term that we use for people like that. We, we, we say they have a magnetic personality. You all met them. And, and, and maybe you are one of them. And, and, and these are the kind of people, they don't try to draw attention to themselves. They don't try to become the center of attention. But somehow they're just kind of divinely gifted and they radiate this, this magnetic charisma. And, and it just seems to just draw people to them. Well, we've been learning in the last several weeks that there was something kind of magnetic about the early church. There were certain qualities about the early church that just drew this unbelieving world, a world that had never heard about Jesus, a world that never heard the gospel, a world that never even thought about giving their life to the church. And yet there was something about the early church in the early days that was so magnetic that, that, that unbelievers just could not wait till Sunday so they could go and see what was going on in the church. And we've identified three of those qualities. And if you've not been here for that series or missed a part of it or don't even know what we're talking about, we're in this series called Magnetic. And what we've been doing is we went back to the early church and we said, what was it about the early church that made the early church such a draw to unbelievers? What was it about the early Christian, the early follower of Jesus that, that, that made them so attractive that unbelievers would say, I want to know what it is about you that's different. I, I want to know what it is that's so distinct that makes you different from you, uh, makes you so different from me. And so we've identified up to this point three of those characteristics. And so by way of review, if you remember, we said the first one was crazy love. We said that the, that the first thing that the early church had going for them was that they just had this unbelievable love for each other. And Jesus said, if you remember, he said to the early church, to the early disciples, if you will love one another the way I've loved you, he said, that's the way the world will know that you are my disciples. The world will be drawn to a church where they see people in a church loving each other as Jesus loves us. We said the second characteristic was straight talk. And we went back and we started tracing every time the early church exploded, every time there was this infusion of new people in the early church, it was always centered around the preaching of the word of God. The early church was didn't, without fear or without favor, they communicated life-changing, relevant truth that drew a world that was actually hungry to hear something different. 
They were hungry to hear something other than what they'd always heard all of their life, whether they were religious or non-religious. Religious. And this early church comes along, and they would just simply take the scriptures that they had. We now have both the Old and the New Testament, but they would just take the early, the early uh, scriptures that they had, particularly the Old Testament, they would open it up, and they would say, this is what God says, and people came like hungry people would come to a buffet table full of food. And then we said last week that the third quality was open hands, that, that the early church had, had this culture of generosity, that, that somehow because of what God had given to them in Jesus, they caught the same spirit and they began to give to people outside the church the needs that they had. And, and it didn't matter to them whether they believed in God or not, whether they loved the church or not. It didn't even matter to them whether they loved Jesus or not. They had this culture of generosity where if you had a need, they were gonna do everything they could to meet that need. And what happened was the world began to care about how much the church knew because they knew how much the church really cared. So they had these characteristics. They had these magnetic qualities of, of um, crazy love. And of this, these, these, this open-handed generosity and this straight talk. Well, today we're going to come to this last quality, and I saved it for last for this reason. It's this last magnetic force that the early church possessed, and it was not only the greatest magnet of all. What you're going to see is this was the magnet that actually held all of the other magnets together. This was kind of the glue that held it all together. And that magnet, I can tell you in one word. It was Jesus. He was the greatest magnet. He was the glue that held it all together. He was the magnet that actually attracted all of the other magnets and made all the other magnets so powerful. And I don't hesitate to tell you, Jesus by far and away was and is the most magnetic personality who ever lived. As a matter of fact, has it ever occurred to you that Jesus even referred to himself in a way as a magnet? He even referred to himself in magnetic terms. You may not remember this, but here's what Jesus said in John 12, 32. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, what does a magnet do? A magnet draws things that are attracted to it, to itself. Jesus said, I will have such a magnetic quality I will be such a magnetic personality. I will exercise such a magnetic force that when I am lifted up, and he was referring to two things, his crucifixion when he was lifted up on the cross and his resurrection when he was lifted up from the empty tomb. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people from every race, every tribe, every color, every culture, every language, every worldview, I will draw all people unto myself. I was reading the other day as I was getting ready uh, for this message a couple, three, about four weeks ago. I was reading about the, the most magnetic force in the entire universe. It's kind of fascinating to me. The most magnetic force in the universe, according to scientists, is, is, is what's known as the magnetar, M-A-G-N-E-T-A-R. It is the magnetar. Now, what is the magnetar? It is a magnetic neutron star. Now, listen to how powerful this star is. This, this star is so powerful, it has such magnetic force, it can slow a runaway locomotive to a dead stop a quarter of a million miles away. 
Now think about how powerful that is. When that magnetic force is exercised, it can take a, 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 a locomotive going down the railroad tracks at 60 miles an hour and bring it to a dead stop from a quarter million miles away. It has the magnetic force a hundred billion times the magnetic field of planet Earth. When I read that, I thought to myself, well, that's what you say is the greatest magnetic force in the universe. I beg to differ. There is a greater magnetic force in the universe. As a matter of fact, this magnet has drawn 2.2 billion people from the very beginning of the early church. From the very first time the church began to, to, began to meet until now, over 2.2 billion people have been drawn, and listen to this, not to the church, not to its doctrine, not to its devotion, not to its dedication. That's not what drew people to the church. That's not what draws people to the church today. It was Jesus that drew people to the church. It's Jesus that draws people to the church. He is that magnetic force. He is that magnetic personality, and he will always be the true magnetic force of a true magnetic church and a true magnetic Christian. Now, here's the secret. He told 2,000 years ago, he had a conversation with his disciples. And he told them both how he would be the most magnetic personality and why he should be the most magnetic personality. Let me show you what he said. It's really kind of very fascinating. If you brought uh, a copy of the Word of God or you have a, some kind of an electronic device you use, I want you to turn to, to the Gospel of Matthew, all right? The Gospel of of Matthew. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, or as Donald Trump would say, one Matthew, all right? So if you'll turn to Matthew, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Now here's what Jesus does. He tells the church, not just in the first century, he tells the church in the 21st century, you want to be a magnetic church? I really do. You want to be a magnetic Christian? I really do. Jesus tells us then and now, okay, let me tell you the most important things you need to do in order to ensure that you're not just a church. And I don't want to be just a church. I want to be a magnetic church. I don't want to be just a Christian. I want to be a magnetic Christian. You say, well, boy, so do I. Pastor, so do I. What do we need to do? What do I need to do in order to be that magnetic church and that magnetic follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 16, he says there are three things we need to do. Number one, we should clarify what we think about Jesus. First step, we should clarify what we think about Jesus. Now, before I read this passage, let me just tell you this. Jesus is going to use a word for the first time in his ministry. He's never used this word in his ministry. The disciples had never heard this word in their life. They didn't even really know probably at first what he was talking about. And it is the word church. And up to now, in any conversation he ever had, he had never used that word. They had never heard the word. They didn't know what a church was. So I want you to keep that in mind as you listen to a question that he asked his disciples. And really what he was doing was he was kind of being his own public opinion poster. And he was kind of taking a kind of a, his own homemade public opinion poll about himself. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, some of you have been with me to Israel, you've been there. He asked his disciples, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's taking a poll. He said, look, I want to know. So what's the opinion out there? What's the talk out there? What's, how, how are people trolling me right now? Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Now, every time I read that, I always think to myself, you know, some things never change. You go, you know, 2,000 years later, kind of, you know, same song, just different book. Because as you can imagine, just like there was then, also today, there are all kinds of opinions about Jesus, just like there were 2,000 years ago. And if you've gone back to the community, if you've been walking around Jerusalem and you've been Gallup, been working for the Gallup organization, if you've been taking a public opinion poll, and as people walk by, you would have said to them, hey, this Jesus Christ, you heard of him? Yeah, I've heard of him. So, so who do you think that he is? What is your opinion of him? Well, some people said, oh, I, I, I think he was a great preacher like John the Baptist, okay? And you'd write that down. Somebody else would come along. So, so who do you think Jesus is? Well, I think, he was a, uh, I think he was a great person like Elijah. So you, you'd write that down. And, and so who do you think he is? Oh, I, I think he was a great prophet like Jeremiah. And, and, and so even today, you hear the same opinions. You go out, you could go down to Atlanta, Georgia right now, ask 20 different people, who do you think Jesus is? You'd get 20 different answers. They'd go like this. Well, I believe Jesus was a great teacher. How about you? Well, I believe Jesus was a great humanitarian. Well, well how about you? Well, I believe Jesus was a great philosopher. Well, so how about you? Well, I believe Jesus was a great example for all mankind. Now, here's the good news. This is one thing I've learned. You will very rarely, if ever, meet anybody that has this bad opinion about Jesus. Everybody has a positive opinion about, I mean, I've never met anybody that just, you, you, you talk about Jesus and they're just down on Jesus. I mean, most everybody out there thinks that Jesus was a special person, that he was a good person, that he was a great person. And practically every opinion you could find about Jesus is a very good, positive opinion. And the average person on the street today would think, they think to themselves, well, I think I've got a pretty balanced position on Jesus. I mean, I believe, for example, Jesus existed. I believe he was real. I believe he was a Galilean Jew, and I believe he was a good Jew. I believe he was a faithful Jew. I believe he was very religious. I believe that he believed in God. And I have to admit that I believe he taught some very wonderful things. I believe he was probably even martyred for his teachings. I have to believe he was one of the most influential men who ever lived. I believe his teachings were not just good and, 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 and thought-provoking. I believe they were very influential. I believe they were even life-changing. The problem is you add all of those things together, every one of them. You take every positive opinion that people have about Jesus, put them all in a bowl, put them all in a cup, and they are still completely inadequate to describe who Jesus was and who he claimed to be. And if Jesus were physically here today, he would find them to be totally and completely unsatisfactory. As a matter of fact, he didn't even leave us those choices. One of my favorite authors, uh, if you don't read him, you ought to read him, was C.S. Lewis. I still love to read C.S. Lewis. And, and, and C.S. Lewis classically explained it this way. Here's the way he put it. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone's, by the way, now he's British, keep that in mind, he has a way of saying things. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely dead on target. Absolutely correct. Jesus said, if all you think that I am is a great teacher, great philosopher, great humanitarian, great philosopher, good guy, wonderful martyr, great this, great that. If that's as far as you go, you don't get it and that's not it. And as a church... There's not a more important thing we'll ever do in everything we do with people who are outside the church than to clarify exactly what it is we think about Jesus. And no one should ever walk out of our church without knowing absolutely crystal clear, this is what we believe about Jesus, and this is who Jesus claimed to be, and this is who we are as a church, and this is who I am as a Christian. And so even in your, in your individual walk, in your individual interaction with people, in the office or in the neighborhood or where you work or where you live or where you play, whenever you hear anyone spout this other stuff about Jesus, you don't need to go out of your way to be, a, to be defensive. You don't need to say something like, you know, no idiot, that's not it, right? I'm not saying to do that. At the same time, you must always, as a believer, in a very tactful but firm way say, you know, with all due respect, can I just clarify something for you? Because this is what I believe about Jesus. This is why I believe it about Jesus, because this is what Jesus said about himself. So number one, we should always be willing and we should be upfront. We should clarify who we think Jesus is. Number two. We should testify to what we believe about Jesus. It's not enough just to clarify what you think about Jesus. Then we need to testify to what we believe about Jesus. Now, there was no shortage of theories about who Jesus was. We've already seen that. Everybody had an opinion. But there was this tremendous gap between who people thought Jesus was and who Jesus said that he was. So keep in mind now, he's having a conversation with who? With these 12 disciples. And he got deep in this conversation with them, and he always got deeper into conversations with them than he did with outside people. You remember when Jesus would teach parables, they wouldn't understand parables. The people, would, he would teach these parables, and somehow they would be in a fog, and they wouldn't get it. But then Jesus would get along with his disciples, and he would say, now, let me make sure that you understand what the parable means. So Jesus would set aside some special time with these special men. He'd have these special conversations that would go under the surface. They would go real deep deep, he would take them into very deep theological waters, and he'd be telling them this unbelievable truth. So now having spent three years with these 12 disciples, now remember, three years, they've watched him, they've listened to him, they've studied him, they've ate with him, they have spent the night together many, many times sleeping on the ground, they have seen him in every imaginable situation, 
Now he puts them on the spot. He, in effect, he says, okay, guys, you've had three years to watch me. You've had three years to hear me. You've had three years to observe me. You've seen me in every imaginable situation. So guys, school is over. Now it's time for the final exam. And I've got one question. There was probably a dramatic pause. You could cut the tension in the air with a knife. And then he asked this question. But what about you? And let me just stop right there. This is the point of this whole message. This is what I'm asking every one of you right now in this room, those of you at Mill Creek, those who are watching on television, those who are watching online. I don't care what everybody else says. I don't care what everybody else thinks. I don't care if it's the PhD at Harvard or the doctor of, 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 of uh, engineering at MIT. Couldn't care less. What about you? Then Jesus says, who do you say that I am. Now, before I go any farther, let me just stop right there. You will never be asked a more important question in your life than that question. Never. Because the answer that you give and the way you give it will determine your eternal destiny. So Jesus says to these disciples, so who do you, by the way, the word you there is plural. He's talking to all of them. Who do you say that I am? He wasn't talking to one of them. He's talking to all of them, just like right now. I'm not talking to one of you. I'm talking to all of you. And Jesus says, okay, guys, you've been in my class three years. You haven't missed a day. You've had three years to ponder. You've had three years to, to, to regurgitate. You've had three years to meditate. You've had three years to think about this. Okay, guys, now, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the bottom line. This is what it all comes down to. Who do you say that I am? And unlike a lot of politicians, you probably have already seen it, Jesus doesn't really go by public opinion. He doesn't really care much about polls or pundits. What Jesus cares about is not public opinion. What Jesus cares about is personal conviction. And see, it's the single most important question that Jesus could ever ask. It is the single most important question you could ever be asked. It's the single most important answer these disciples are about to give and that one day you will have to give even before you leave this planet. And to paraphrase the great Winston Churchill, here's what he would have said about the apostle Peter at this moment. He would have said, this was his finest hour. Because the group right now, they're probably kind of looking at the ground. They're stammering. They're stuttering. They're kind of looking at each other. They're kind of drawing circles in the, in the dirt with their feet. They're not really sure what to say. And finally, Peter, who was never at a loss for words, stepped up and he blurts this out. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simple sentence. How many words? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ten words. But he covers all the bases. Says it all. Says exactly what Jesus wanted to hear. He says, first of all, you are the Christ. Now, that comes from the Greek term Christos. That's a translation of the Hebrew word which gives us the word Messiah. And both the Hebrew word and the Greek word literally means 
anointed one. Now, here's what I want you to get the background of this word. Back in Near Eastern cultures, whenever a person was going to be especially recognized for something he did, maybe it was valor on the battlefield or maybe it was victory in a great war, there would be this ceremony. And they take a small amount of oil and it would be poured over his head. And it was their way of anointing a leader. Whenever a new king was crowned, they always did this. Before they would put the crown on the king's head, he would bow and they would take this oil and they would pour the oil over his head. And to be the Lord's anointed meant you were the king. Now understand, to come from a Jew, Peter was a Jew. This was a breathtaking statement. Peter was saying, in effect, I get it. I get it. No, you're not just a great prophet. You're not just a great philosopher. You're not just a great person. You are, in fact, the one that the prophets prophesied about. You are the one we have been waiting on. You are the Messiah of our nation. Now, I promise you at that moment, did Peter have a full understanding of just exactly what he was saying? No. Did Peter have a full understanding of just what kind of a Messiah that he was? No. Because just like every other Jew, he wasn't really thinking spiritually. He was thinking politically. You're the one that's going to finally deliver the nation of Israel from the clutches of the Roman Empire. You're now going to restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place as the chosen people, as the number one nation in the world. But regardless of what he may have thought, he said unequivocally one thing. Hey, I get it. The wait is over. The hope has been fulfilled. God's promises have been kept. The prophecies are coming true. The dream is about to become a reality. You are the Christ. Breathtaking from a Jew to say that. Probably all the disciples gasped in unison, but he wasn't finished. He goes on to say, the son of the living God. Now, whatever air was left got sucked out. Because in the Hebrew way of thinking, to be a son meant you shared all of the father's qualities you shared all of the Father's power. You shared all of the Father's privileges. That's why no one would ever call someone the Son of God in a family sense. Now, you, they might call you the Son of God, meaning, well, yeah, God created you like he created me. They might say it in that sense. But in a family sense, no one would ever call someone the Son of God because you know why? That would be blasphemy. That would get you killed. That would get you hung. That would get you crucified. And yet only someone that was somewhat divine in his person and divine in his power would in that sense be called the son of God. And notice what Peter said. I love the way Peter says it. Peter didn't say, well, I think you're the son of God. Oh, Peter didn't even say this. He didn't say, well, I know who you are for me. I know who you are for our disciples. I know who you are for the nation of Israel. You are the son of God. No, he says without hesitation, without equivocation. I know exactly who you are. You are the Jewish Messiah. You are the savior of the world. And you are in a very familial sense, the son of the living God. And that's what we as a church in the 21st century must clearly testify to every time we gather together. And this is how important it is. I don't care what else you believe about Jesus. I don't care how strong you believe it. It doesn't matter whether you believe anything else or everything else. 
If you do not believe, and if we do not believe, and if you do not teach, and we do not preach that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and Jesus is the world's Savior, and Jesus is the divine Son of God, we just lost our greatest magnet. We, we just lost all of our magnetic force. No, we don't know everything. I get that. We, we don't possess all the truth. There are a lot of things that we're right to express uncertainty about. You know, sometimes it's really interesting. It's kind of hard to be a pastor. You know why? People think you're the answer man when you're a pastor. They think you know everything about everything there's to know about everything that pertains to God. I've got news for you. The more I learn, the more I realize the little I know. And it just kind of helps you on something, okay? If you ever want to play the stump the pastor game, that's not hard to do. There are a lot of, listen, there are quite a few Bible questions that I, have, I would say to you, I don't know. I a lot of them. You know, why? Why does God even let the devil out of the cage? I don't know. You go to the book of Revelation, and I'm not trying to, this is not even my notes, so I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a moment. God puts the devil in prison for a thousand years. After a thousand years, he lets him out. Why does God do that? I don't know. Why does God, in his sovereign and grace and will, why does he even let there be a football team called the Florida Gators? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of, I don't know. I wouldn't have done it if I was God. I'm not God. But there are a lot of things, uh, you know, I really don't know. And I, I want you to understand, I'm not totally certain about everything. But I will tell you this. There is one thing we ought to be absolutely dogmatic about. As a matter of fact, let me get even stronger. When it comes to saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we ought not just to be dogmatic about it. We ought to be bulldogmatic about it. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the hope of the world. He is the Savior of all mankind. He is the Son of the living God. And that's what brings me to this. I, I want you to do something for me. There's, a, um, there's something I think that was in your, yeah, in your worship guide. Would you pull this out for me? Everybody pull this out. It's a little magnet. Okay, everybody see this? Magnetic. Now, I know probably you're going, wow, that's real creative. Have a magnet at a magnetic series. I know, I, I thought this one up, okay? It's about as creative as I get. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you believe what I believe, and this, this, this is where, now if you don't, put it up. But if you believe what I believe, if you believe what Peter said, hey, pastor, I believe it. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he is the subject of the Old Testament. I believe he's the one that all the prophets talked about. I believe he is God's fulfillment to the Jewish people. He is the Messiah. And I furthermore believe he is the son of the living God. I believe he is deity. I believe he's God incarnate. I believe he's the savior of the world. Yeah, I believe that. Okay, if you believe that, then you want to be magnetic. You want to lift Jesus up and draw other people to him just like you were drawn to him. So I'm going to ask you to take this, and it's real easy. Here's what it says. I am praying for and asking God to allow me to be a magnetic force for him in the life of, what I want you to do is sometime today, I want you to write somebody's name in there that God's laid on your heart. It may be a next door neighbor. It may be one of your relatives. It may be your spouse. It may be a child. It may be a brother or sister. It may be somebody that works in the cubicle next to you. It may be somebody that plays on the football team or basketball team with you. It may be your coach. I don't know who it is, but I want you to write down the name of someone in that, in that, in that box.
And between now and Easter, I want you to pray and ask God to give you the opportunity to begin to have an influence in that person's life. It could be everything from inviting them to one of our services, it could be in making sure that, you, you know, if nothing else, you say, please, I want you to mark Easter Sunday down. I want you to come on Easter Sunday and be a part of our church. It may be all the way to you saying to them, you know what, can I show you something? I got to show you what they gave out in church today. I want to tell you something. I hope I don't offend you. I've got to tell you this. I wrote your name in there. Your heart was so, your name was so heavy to me. It's almost like God wrote it down before I wrote it down. I just want to share with you what Christ has done for me. I just want to share my testimony of how God's grace has radically changed my life. And I want you to put that on there. And then this says this, I am believing God for the opportunity to reach this person for Christ between now and Easter weekend. How could you not be willing to do that? If you really believe what Peter said about Jesus, if you really believe, yep, He's not just this, he's not just that, he's not just this, he's not just that. He really is the Messiah, and he really is the Son of God. How could you not say, yeah, I'll do that, Pastor. I will take this magnet. I'm going to pray it through and think it through. Some of you don't have to pray it through. You already know who it is. Or God just now, boom, laid it on your heart. You're going to write that down. And between now and Easter Sunday, you're going to ask God to give you opportunities to influence that person for Christ and try at least to get them here sometime at a service, if not Easter Sunday. All right, so number one, what do we need to do to be a magnetic church, be a magnetic Christian? What do we need to do with Jesus? Number one, we need to clarify what we think about Jesus. Number two, we need to testify to who we believe that Jesus is, okay? Now, here's the last thing. Number three, we should, of course, magnify what Jesus will do for us. Now, I love this conversation that Jesus had, and, and, I, and this is one of those conversations. I really wish I'd been there, kind of in the bushes watching. It's so cool. Because Jesus, this is the final exam. This is kind of right before the cross. And it's kind of the last question he's really going to ask the disciples. Up to now, he hasn't really asked them a lot of questions. He's just been kind of teaching them. But now he says, okay, I've been teaching you everything and I've been doing everything. You've been watching everything because I've been trying to prepare you to get the right answer to this question. And so Peter gives this answer and Jesus is overjoyed at his answer. And Professor Jesus gives Peter an A-plus on his final exam. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in effect, gives him a one-man standing ovation. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon. Now, let me just stop right there. <laughs> when Jesus says you're blessed, you're blessed. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my Father in heaven. Now, what Jesus was saying was, look, even though Peter didn't really figure this out on his own, because his eyes were open to the truth, because his heart was open to God, he saw the light who Jesus really was. Now, this is something we need to remember. This is so important. Listen, hear this now. It is our job to testify to the truth. That's our job, just to testify to the truth, okay? You say, boy, that's, that's a lot of pressure. I mean, what if, what if I get rejected and, 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 and what if people get upset or what if people get offended or, or, or what if I'm not very good at it? Okay, here's the good news. There's no pressure, no pressure. All God wants you to do, you just testify to the truth. 
Well, you say, why isn't there any pressure? Because I want to tell you this right up front. Only God can open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And only God can open the ears of the spiritually deaf. And only God can give life to the spiritually dead. And so that's why he said to Peter, Peter, I'm glad you said this, but let me just make sure you understand. You didn't figure this out on your own. I didn't just talk you into this. Our, the heavenly father, my father revealed this to you. And see, this is what I want you to understand. All we're to do is to testify to what we believe about Jesus. All we're to do is to testify who we believe that Jesus was, who Jesus claimed to be. From that point on, God says there's nothing else you can do. If their eyes are open, it won't be because you did it. It's going to be, I'll did it, because I did it. If their ears are open, it won't be because you opened them, it'll be because I opened them. If their heart is receptive, it won't be because you made them receptive, it's because I made them receptive. And what Jesus says next, listen to this, what Jesus says next is the number one reason why if you are truly, and I am truly a follower of Jesus, I mean really, not just in head, but in heart, if what Jesus said next is true, it is why we should be excited, not just about the future of the church, it's why we ought to be enthusiastic to be a part of God's church. Now listen to what he says in this next verse. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, Anybody that knows much about their Bible, you know what I'm about to tell you. And if you don't, I'll go ahead and let you in on a clue. You talk about controversial. You talk about a verse of Scripture that's almost started a religious war. There has been so much controversy over exactly what this verse means and what Jesus meant by his words. Now, I'm going to tell you something that happened to me as I began to study the Scripture. It's amazing how God can change your heart when you just not bring your preconceived notions, not bring your presuppositions as much as you can help it, but you just say, okay, I'm just going to take the text at face value. I'm going to let the text say what the text says. And I begin to read all these magnificent evangelical conservative commentators, and they all kept saying the same thing. And I, could, I said, you know what? They're right. So let me just tell you what, this, what I believe this means. I'm going to take Jesus' words at face value. I'm not going to try to change what he said or kind of nuance what he said. He said, on the one hand, he said, Peter, you are Peter. And on this rock, and he's talking to Peter. He said, okay, Peter. He said, you're going to be the rock upon which I'm going to start building my church. Now, hold on. What is it about Peter that Jesus said, I'm going to make you the first brick. I'm going to make you kind of the rock here. Put it in context. It wasn't Peter. He wasn't really the rock per se. It was the confession of faith he had just made, which is the truly foundational belief of the church, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And when Peter, anybody else could have said that, but nobody else said a word. Peter's the one that stood up. If Andrew had stood up, he would have said to Andrew, you're the rock. If, John, if Matthew had stood up, he would have said, Matthew, you're the rock. Peter's the one that said, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And what Peter, Jesus was saying to Peter was, Peter, because you stood up, because you stepped up, because you got it right, because you had the courage to say what nobody else wanted to say, you're going to be the first one because you're the first one to make this formal confession. 
you're going to be the first among equals. You're going to set the example for others to follow. And guess what happened? So who preached the first sermon after Jesus ascended to heaven? Who did that? Somebody tell me. Peter. Who was it that first saw the great influx of thousands of people joining the church? It was Peter. Who became the unqualified leader of the early church? Who was the go-to guy in the early church? Peter. He was the guy. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you know what? Because of what you said, your confession of faith, what you said about me, that's going to be the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Now, here's the wonderful news. Guess what? We can all be just like Peter. Every one of us. Because our focus, just like Peter's, can be on Jesus. Our faith will be in Jesus. And our focus on Jesus and our faith in Jesus is the rock upon which Jesus continues to build his church. And by the way, that leads to the most important statement Jesus said in this whole passage. The most important thing he said was, you are Peter upon this rock. That's not the most important statement. What he said next is the most important statement. He said, and let me just stop, time out. What he said next is a reason why I don't understand why someone who says they are a Christian does not want to be a part of the church. And this is what he said next is, is the reason why I just can't get my hands around someone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm excited about Jesus. I am in love with Jesus. I just don't really care about the church. I don't get it. Doesn't make sense. And here's why. Because the most important statement he said was this statement. I will build my church. Now remember, first time the church has ever mentioned the New Testament, and it is the only prediction Jesus ever made about the church. He never made another prediction about the church. He said, mark it down, guaranteed, take this one to the bank. I will build my church. And when Jesus said, I will build my church, he gave the strongest guarantee that the church will succeed, that the church will never die, that the church will always be here. But now this is what we need to remember. And this is what as a pastor, I really need to remember. He didn't say, listen, I will build your church. He didn't say that. Oh, he also didn't say, you will build my church. He didn't say that either. He said, I will build my church. Now, I want you to hear this. Any pastor can build a building. But only Jesus can build his church. We can build a crowd. But only Jesus can build a true church. Matter of fact, you know what the word church literally means? The word church literally means an assembly of people. Let me tell you, this is, this is where a lot of people understand what Jesus said. When Jesus said, I will build my church... He was not saying, I'm going to build a place. He said, I'm going to build a people. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, he wasn't saying, I'm going to build a building. He said, I'm going to build a body. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, he didn't say, I'm going to build a denomination. I'm going to build a church. 
And the reason why every believer in Jesus Christ and every follower of Jesus Christ should want to be a part of a church is because when you become a part of a church, you become a part of two things. Number one, you become a part of something Jesus is building. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And furthermore, you become a part of something that Jesus said can never fail. And the only church that Jesus builds is the church where he's the foundation and he is the focus. That's why the number one job of Cross Point Church will always be to magnify Jesus, testify to Jesus, clarify Jesus, and tell others what he does for us and what he can do for them. Let me tell you why this is so important. There was a lady that came up to me. This has been uh, about, I don't know, maybe, maybe seven, eight, nine months ago. I don't remember exactly. But I was out there in the lobby, and real sweet lady, and she came up to me after service. And, and by the way, just, just so you'll know, you know, not everybody that comes up to me has something positive to say. I know you probably think they're giving me all these praises and all these. And not, not always. I don't get a lot of negative stuff, and I'm not saying this is negative. I'm just letting you know. I'll just say this. It is really interesting to be out there. I'll just kind of leave it at that. You just, you get all kinds of stuff. Talk to all kinds of people. So this lady comes up to me and um, I'll, you know, hi, how are you doing? And, you know, how long have you been coming or something like that? I mean, so right off the bat, she says, uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful. Stop right there. Memo to self. When somebody says that, it's not going to go well. Okay, just trust me. She said, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but she says, I've got an issue with you. She's been coming here for a few weeks. And I said, well, yes, ma'am, what is it? I said, well, you know, what's the problem? She said, um, I'll tell you what my problem is. She kind of folded her arms and she's sweet. She wasn't ugly about anything like that. She said, um, why, why don't you ever talk about the Holy Spirit? She said, I hardly ever. I said, I've been here for weeks and I, I never hear you mention the Holy Spirit. She said, why don't you talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm going to be very honest. I mean, when you, you know, that's the last thing I was really thinking to be asked, right? And, and so you're a little bit back on your heels a little bit. And you don't want to get, you know, real defensive. But, I mean, you got to be quick on your feet. you got to, you know, think about something, you know. And you, what you don't want to say is, man, I've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. You know, you don't, you don't want to be like those, those, those Christians in the book of Acts, right? They want to do that. And so you're saying, I mean, you know, you got to think on your feet. And, and I mean, and I, and I, I just shot up when I was there. I said, well, God help me. I said, I'm not trying to ignore the Holy Spirit. And, and it's what I told her. I mean, it just, it just came to me. I said, well, ma'am, I, I said, I'll tell you why. I said, the reason I probably don't talk too much about the Holy Spirit is because I'm just too busy talking about what the Holy Spirit wants me to talk about. And she said, well, what do you mean? And this verse of scripture came to me. I said, do you, do you remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? She said, what? I said, well, Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me. And she said, I, 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 that's right. And I said, so, I said, if I'm full of the Holy Spirit, all I'm going to talk about is Jesus. I said, so let me give you an example. I said, let's suppose that I invited the Holy Spirit to come to our church and preach one Sunday. She said, okay. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what do you think he'd preach about? She said, well, I guess he'd preach about Jesus. I said, I don't guess he would. That's what Jesus said he'd do. He'd testify to me. I said, so let's suppose I invited him back the second Sunday. 
And I said to the Holy Spirit, now you can just talk about anything you want to talk about. I said, what do you think he talked about? She, well, I think he talked about Jesus. I don't think, I said, yeah, he talked about Jesus. I said, every Sunday we invited him back. Now you just talk about anything you want to talk about. He'd always talk about Jesus. I don't mean he just, you know, he, he might preach on different things. But I said, his focus would be on Jesus. So I said, to be honest with you, I said, I'm just doing what the Holy Spirit has told me to do. I'm just talking about what he tells me to talk about. I know she smiled, really, hugged me, gave me this big kiss. She said, I like that. I like you. See, here, here's my point. A church that is magnetic, well, always focus on Jesus, not exclusively, but preeminently. He'll always be the locomotive in the train. He'll never be the caboose. He'll always be at the head of the parade, not at the back of the parade. I told some men today that were praying for me. I said, man, I'm so excited. I'm preaching today on my favorite subject, Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men Unto me, And this is what I'm trying to hear, get you to hear me say today. This is why I'm so passionate about this. Jesus is the builder of this church. He is. We are the bricks. Now, the mortar that holds us together is this crazy love that we have for one another. And when people walk into our church, they ought to hear straight talk from the word of God. And when they're here, they should be received with open hands of generosity that provide a spiritual environment for them and their families inside the church and meets their needs outside the church. And above all, they ought to know one thing about Cross Point Church. The magnetic personality of our church is not James Merritt. The magnetic personality of our church is Jesus. He, he is the focus and the foundation and the finisher of everything we believe. So I want to wrap this up, just say this. I used to serve with a man. He's a dear friend to this day, one of the greatest men I've ever known. And sometimes in staff meeting, I'd call on him to pray. I love to hear him pray. But whenever he prayed, he always ended his prayers with this statement. And I love this. Listen, to this is what he would say. He would say, if there's anything good about us, it's that Jesus lives in us. Let me tell you something. If there's anything good about James Merritt, anything, it is not that I have a PhD from a seminary. It's not that I can read Greek and kind of work in Hebrew. It's not that I know how to outline a text. It's not that I can tell funny stories. It's not that I try to be an engaging personality. It's not that I'm from the deep south and have a drawl that people like to listen to. It's none of that. If there is anything good about this guy right here, anything, it's that Jesus lives in me. If there's anything good about you, you, you say, well, I, I'm a good old boy. If, there, if you're a good old boy, I'll tell you why you're a good old boy. It's because that good, wonderful Jesus lives in you. The only thing good about us is that Jesus lives in us. So, lap it up. You go back to the very beginning of the church. You talk about a hopeless situation. Think about it now. You've got these few Christians. They're powerless. They're weak. They're the target of scorn and ridicule. They've got no money, no buildings, no social status, no government approval, no respect from the educated elite, no political influence whatsoever, but they did have Jesus, the Son of God. They did have truth, the Word of God. They did have affection, the love of God. They did have compassion, the generosity of God. And I'm telling you today, what made that early church magnetic then can make the church today magnetic now. And my prayer would be, above all things, our church 
and us individually would be gloriously to the glory of God magnetic. Let's pray together.